This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Great to hear you, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hello, Kenji. Hey, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about how to tackle evil and other problems at the workplace, the difference between creepy and dangerous, and the moral poverty of homophobia and its price tag for everyone. So here's our first question. Dear ethicists, I've just been offered a job I never thought I would be so lucky as to get. However, the conditions under which it became available are highly suspect. I came into consideration for the position offered, before such a position even existed, through a wonderful program coordinator who I just met and who was going to hire me to do some hourly work for her. I thought this supervisor was fantastic, and I was excited to get to work together. About a week into our talks, we had an email chain going about availability, and the third email I sent in this chain got bounced back to me saying the account was no longer in service. I assumed it was an email glitch and forwarded the message to the contact email address in the auto message about undeliverability. The supervisor contacted me a few hours later through LinkedIn to say she had been fired that afternoon due to office politics and that her supervisor was going to be contacting me to offer me a position. She advised me not to talk to her. I did talk to her supervisor, though, and she did offer me a position. Not the position that she'd just fired her employee from, but similar, only focused on doing exactly what my specialty and training and experience are in. I should say that I've been looking for more stable work, as I've been working multiple part-time jobs for three years. I spoke with my original contact after I spoke with her former supervisor, and she told me the supervisor is evil. She'll use me and dump me, and that there were no grounds for her termination. We work in education, so the students are suffering as the program has stalled out due to the firing and incomplete hiring process. I agreed to fill in for a few days at the end of the term, and several students asked where their old coordinator has gone. I know she was good to them, and good things happened in the program as she ran it. I also know one administrative assistant in the office is quitting because of what happened to the employee who so abruptly lost her job. I don't know what to do. I've looked high and low for positions like this for the past three years and found nothing. If I don't take it, I don't know how many more years of multiple part-time jobs are ahead. But I also don't want to abet someone who unfairly terminated an employee who is doing a great job. I'm a grown person, and I can handle difficult supervisors. And I also believe that I can do a good job in this role and do right by the students. But I also have a loose political connection that is not too difficult to uncover. And that, I can't help but wonder, might have made the supervisor salivate, terminate her good employee, and try to cozy up to me. And when I say loose, it is distant. But if that's the reason the former coordinator lost her job, because the supervisor saw an opportunity, how complicit am I in her underhanded dealings if I take the job? Signed, name withheld. So this is a happy circumstance for me where I think that I can give uh, my total endorsement (laughs) to the ethical nature of the letter writer's uh, 
proposed conduct, which is to say that she can take the dream job with a clear conscience. And what it came down to for me was that the chain of um, complicity uh, or perceived complicity on her part uh, with this um, potential bad action was just way too long. So as I figured it, it went something like this. Number one was the letter writer has a distant political connection, which she can't obviously help having. Um, Two, uh, the supervisor learned of this connection and was impressed by it, even though the letter writer took no action to bring it to her attention, much less to, you know, use it actively. Um, Three, the supervisor was swayed by this political connection in the letter writer's view, rather than some other merit-based reason to terminate uh, the other employee uh, who first contacted the letter writer. And again, here, we only have one side of the story from the terminated employee. And fourth, and finally, that the employee's job was essentially interchangeable with the letter writer's job, even though we learned that the job actually offered to the letter writer was uh, a perfect fit for her specialty and experience. So I just think that the letter writer is being hyper-ethical here, and I have no reservations about giving the letter writer a green light. Though, of course, beware, uh, letter writer, that you could lose your job in the same way if indeed the um, supervisor turns out to be the nightmare that she is alleged to be. Yeah, I think I I, I agree that um, she may take the job, um, because after all, what would be achieved by not taking it? Uh, there's no evidence that simply not taking the job uh, would make uh, the supervisor into a better person, would make um, the supervisor behave better in future, and so on, or indeed would cost the supervisor anything except the, the business of trying to find somebody else to do the job. One thing, though, that I think uh, is not on exactly on on the radar of the of the of the letter, but seems to me important to bring out is that um, if the supervisor is as terrible a boss as the fired employee thinks, and I share Kenji's view that um, having only heard one side of the story here. Uh, it's not obvious that you should think that, but if it turns out that that's true, then this person is doing something, is behaving towards her, uh, those who are below her in the employment hierarchy in a way that she ought not to. And the bosses, her bosses, I think, uh, should need to know about this. And because she is a bad boss in this way, you're going to have to do it perhaps anonymously or something. But um it does seem to me that uh, someone who's who's says it were this bad a boss at some point you may have uh, be under some kind of obligation to make it known to to her supervisors that um, that this is so. But uh, that's down the road. Right now, it seems to me you don't have any reason um, to to not to take the job. Yeah, I also appreciate the fact that the letter writer was really thinking very carefully and you know, with with a lot of concern about um, what was the right thing to do. I also noticed that aside from the fact that she knows that one of the administrative assistants quit um, because of what happened to the employee who so abruptly lost her job, um, if in fact she knows that that's why the person quit, that's the only real information she has. Everything else is the report of somebody whom she likes and was impressed by, but doesn't know very well about the person who fired her. And That's so right. it's, she has no it's, reason to take that person's judgments as her own. Judgments, right. I mean, there, right? there are no facts here at all. And I also agree with Anthony, which is that 
Um, if it turns out that this is a terrible boss who treats her, um, uh, her subordinates um, badly, I would certainly encourage the letter writer to keep track of that, to remember this incident, and to be aware when she has facts of, um, of how she wants to approach this and, and to tackle this issue. Because if all those things turn out to be true, that she fired somebody unfairly and so on, that's, that's going to be important information to share with um, the boss's bosses. Um, but I think, you know, you don't, want to f- you don't want the fact that you feel bad about something to be confused with the idea that you have done something wrong. And I think if she's focusing on the fact, she hasn't done anything wrong. And there's not even any way of knowing um, why she's been offered this job except for her merit. And, um, and I was struck by her concern that maybe this distant connection uh, to a politically connected relative might be the reason she got the job. I suppose it might be, but it also just might be because she was a really good candidate and I would encourage her to take that view as she takes the job and keep her eyes open about the awfulness of the boss. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, for years I have suspected that a member of my extended family is a pedophile, though I had no real evidence. When we were young, we spent a lot of time together, but we live across the country from each other now and rarely see each other. Over the years, I have observed his avid interest in adolescent boys, but I do not know that he has ever acted upon his desires. For a time, he worked with victims of abuse, and I feared he had easy access to potential victims. That is no longer the case. I've never been able to sort out the ethical path between accusing someone, perhaps falsely, of such a crime, potentially ruining their lives, and the responsibility to protect potential victims. I have erred on the side of not making such an accusation, but was that the ethical choice? Signed, name withheld. Well, look, an accusation of, of, of this sort, an accusation that someone is a pedophile is a, is a very serious matter uh, because, of course, uh, sexual assaults on children are terrible things, morally abhorrent things that we ought to tr- do our uh, utmost to try and prevent and protect children from. But merely wanting to do those things, though it's creepy, uh, is not itself something that we uh, we know anything, we, we, the rest of us can do anything about. All we can do is to make sure that someone who is tempted to do those things is kept away from the occasions of temptation. That is, is not left alone with uh, adolescent uh, adolescence. And um, I think that if this relative of yours is uh, a pedophile, it was extremely unwise of him to put himself in circumstances where uh, he would be tempted to do something awful. But, as I say, it's a serious accusation, and a mere suspicion for such a serious accusation doesn't seem to me uh, uh, enough to take to anybody else. On the other hand, um, I don't think it's right to say you have only suspicions, bec- at least at least I would give suspicion here a little bit more weight than the letter writer does because in this area, instincts about people are likely to be a fairly uh, good guide. Uh, For one thing, for evolutionary reasons, we're very good at detecting sexual interest in other people, including sexual interest in people other than ourselves. But but as I say, it's a very serious accusation and absent uh, real evidence 
I think what you have is grounds for talking to your relatives uh, and perhaps for consulting with other people in the family whose judgments uh, you respect and who would also, like you, uh, not want to make a, an accusation of this sort without evidence. Um, so if your relative w- was in a position where a paedophile would regularly be tempted to do wrong, I think you'd have to do more than just wonder about it. You'd have to take it up with him if you can. Now, I, I recognize that this would be hard, and I recognize that it might not lead anywhere, that you might just get an angry reaction. But I think the very fact that you bring it up means that if your accusation, if your suspicion is correct, uh, the person knows that there's at least one person, as it were, watching and has further reason, as I say, to keep himself away from temptation and also to avoid the acts. Now, um, as, as you describe the situation, he's no longer alone, left alone with adolescence, and so there's no current danger. So if you're asking whether you should have done more in the past, I think the answer to that question is, yes, you should have done more. You should have taken it up with the relative. Uh, and then what you should have done next would, of course, depend on how that conversa- those conversations went. I agree with the part about bringing it up with the relative, but I have to say, when I read this letter, I have to disagree with you about the part that one's instincts are usually correct about this kind of thing. The last time the letter writer spent any time with this person is when they were young. And that's when the person suspected there was um, a lot of interest in adolescent boys. They rarely see each other. But over the years, when they do occasionally see each other, he's observed this avid interest in adolescent boys, doesn't know that he's ever acted upon the desire. Then for a while, he worked with victims of abuse, and the letter writer had fears, but he doesn't work with those people anymore. It seems to me, you know, sometimes people have really sound instincts, but you know, there are also a lot of things that, especially if you don't know somebody well, you might misinterpret. This is, by the way, not to say, oh, please give every relative or every person you know a free pass if you see them expressing what you consider to be unhealthy and avid interest in, um, in anybody who might be their sexual victim. It's not that. But I also want to say that we have strong, instinctive, negative responses to other people for a wide range of reasons. Um, that may have to do with our own past and our own childhood as much as they do with actual signs of, of, of somebody being a sexual predator. And it's not that I think, again, that we should dismiss those signs, but I am suggesting here that this seems to be very, very thin since this is somebody that the letter writer rarely sees. Just to make sure we're not talking past each other, though, I didn't take Antony to be saying that um, there was a kind of notion that he, that the letter writer would understand um, the sexual proclivities or sexual interest on the part of the relative, a a kind of retail matter. I think Antony was making the claim as a, a kind of wholesale matter of saying we generally as human beings have these intuitions. So it doesn't, from that perspective, it wouldn't matter how well or not well or how much contact there had been between the letter writer and the relative. Is that, is that right, Antony, or am I? Yeah, I mean, I, I, all I think is that um, I agree that we can have uh, our intuitions in many matters are, are unreliable. Uh, much of modern psychology consists in discovering how bad we are at detecting all kinds of things and, and how easy it is to get us to have false beliefs. But, but in this area, because it's a serious matter, a suspicion based on these sorts of intuitions is something that I think 
uh, once you've got it, and, and it's not just that he, he, he uh, this person formed these impressions around the relative when they were young together. Uh, you know, he's noticed this interest off and on over the years. So I think uh, he does have grounds f- uh, not for reporting anything. He just doesn't have sufficient evidence for that. But he does have grounds, I think, if he has the, the, the contact and the courage uh, to take it up with the relative. Or oh, he did have. As I say, I don't think that now that the relative is sort of older and, and not likely to be um, in, in charge of, of adolescence again, uh, I'm not sure that it's, it's, uh, this is the right time to be thinking about doing anything. But in the past, when this person was working regularly with victims of abuse, and presumably children and, and adolescents, um, I think at that point, given these suspicions, it would have been reasonable. Uh, it would have been not just reasonable, I think it would have been a good thing uh, perhaps even an obligation to say to this person, look, I'm really sorry to bring this up, but it's a, it's a serious matter. And I wonder whether you should be hanging around these children. I mean, I, 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 I'm not doing this, you know, you'd have to put more <laughs> thought into exactly how to begin yeah. the conversation. But I do think that you have enough suspicion here, enough grounds here for saying, look, I have a reason to think that this person may be uh, motivated in these ways. Uh um, evidence suggests that people motivated in these ways, if they're left alone with adolescents, especially adolescents who have been victimized, are likely to take advantage of them. And so I have a reason in trying to protect those um, children and frankly also in trying to protect this person from what would after all be um, uh, involvement in a horrible in a horrible offense. So, so I, I think there's enough basis here for saying, look, this is a serious matter. Um, you should have uh, you should have done it. You should have right. done, done it in the past. In the past, yeah. I'm not. I think in the present, it's sort of all too late. And there's nothing to be done. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I I certainly would have probably taken that approach as well. Which is, I have these concerns. I have made some observations, and so somewhere during that period, maybe when the relative is working with victims of abuse, you know, you it it's certainly a good thing to go and speak to the person about it. Directly, I mean that's a that's a really bold, strong thing to do, and um, the chances of it's going well are are not high, but no. that doesn't make it a less important thing to do. And in fact, it maybe encourages that sense of obligation because you know that most people are not going to be prepared to have that conversation. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, I am a young gay man in college. This opportunity would not be possible if it were not for my father, who generously pays for my tuition and rent. The problem is that he does not know I am gay, but has made it very clear that if I were, he would not only withdraw all financial support, but also cast himself entirely out of my life. His suspicion arose in high school, when he found love letters between me and another male student. I swore they were meaningless, and have since been defending my heterosexuality. Questions about my sexuality are inevitable whenever I have come home. The intensity of these questions are so severe that my father has demanded I produce archives of all emails and text messages for him to review, although I have successfully refused these requests on the grounds that he has no claim to my communications as an adult. The question is this, is it ethical for me to continue accepting financial support, for which I depend on for my education and my career that will come from it? Could I continue to lie so to accept the support and one day disclose my sexuality and pay him back to absolve myself of any ethical wrongdoing? Signed, name withheld. I think this is such a difficult situation that this young man finds him in. It seems to me so terrible that it should be so hard to get a college education in this country um, without accumulating um, massive debt. 
Um, and I think that what's happening here is not just um, an issue of finances, but of um, a real um, wish on the par part of the father to um, dominate and control and in some very important way bully his son. Um, you know, the fact that there were love letters between the letter writer and... Um, you know, and another and another boy that he was then forced to swear were meaningless and has been, you know, claiming to be heterosexual ever since and that there are constant questions about his sexuality, which the father demands that he answers and that the intensity is so severe that the father is now saying, produce archives of all emails and text messages for him to review. That's just abuse. That's not about money. Um, and it may not even necessarily be about his being gay, but um, this is a father who probably knows that his son is gay, because why else would you be tormenting him with all these questions and all of this insistence on, um, on what he comes up with? And he wants the letter writer to definitely choose not to act on his feelings, and he wants the letter writer to lie, and he wants the letter writer to lie because he's holding the money, right? And the person who has the gold makes the laws is clearly how the father sees. And, um, and, and the letter writer says, you know, if he understands that I am a healthy gay young man, he's going to withdraw financial support. And it's really hard because of the questions. If there were no questions, I would say, I think you can say nothing about your private life and your sexuality and your being. And lots of people keep these things from their parents. Um, and you can do that in a completely honorable way. Um, I mean, the real shame in this is shame on the father for tying his son's lying to his financial support. Um, and he is so wrong in his questions and his demands. So it makes me feel that, that the letter writer can, at his age and in his position of dependency, um, lie to his father and produce a blank cell phone screen and know that although he is not taking the bravest or most admirable stance, his lying is understandable, although it is still lying. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you know that somebody is going to do harm to you because you, um, if you tell them the truth, I don't think it means that you haven't lied, but um, you can certainly, um, I think, maybe forgive yourself for the lying in this circumstance and um, maybe, maybe be mindful of the fact that this, this will not last and, um, and that you don't have to keep lying. Um, and I would also say that why the letter writer's father thinks that hating his father will make someone love having sex with women, I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good image. I mean, look, I, I agree with most of what you said, though. I think that um, it is important that uh, in our culture and given the general way in which uh, college education is funded in our society, I don't think it's right to think of the parental support here as, as just a kind of free gift which the parent is is entitled 
uh, to withdraw well, sort of on on any basis, especially on a basis as bad as this one. I mean, basically, a responsible parent who has the resources in our society, I think, has an obligation uh, to provide their fair share after financial aid and contributions from the kid based on uh, his his work and so on. Um, I, I think you have a, it's not just that you're free to do so; you have a kind of obligation to do so against this background of how college education is uh, um, is is funded in our country and. Um, of course, the child has obligations too to take the college work seriously, to do the work and so on. But, but uh, in against that background and supposing that this young man is taking college seriously and is is doing his fair share, I don't think that the the parent has a right uh, to threaten to withdraw that support. Uh, actually for any reason except a failure to be uh, serious about college. So if you think that, as I do, then... Um, if you know that if you tell him the truth, he'll do something that he ought not to do, uh, he's going to treat you in a way he ought not to treat you, then I think uh, that that's the circumstance in which, uh, while a lie is a bad thing and it continues to be a bad thing, uh, it's it's permissible given that the consequence of telling the truth will be that somebody else will behave uh, quite impermissibly um, towards you. So, you know, if you sort of analyze it that way, then I think uh, th- not only do I think that this young man is entitled to try and conceal uh, the truth here from his from his father, but he doesn't owe him a repayment later, as he suggests, uh, when mm-hmm. uh, you know when he can afford it, uh, uh, because his father wouldn't have given it to him if he told him the truth. I think that his father, as I say, I think I think parents have have duties in this area, duties of support, given the background in our society of how these things are funded, and given that you have the duty threatening not to do your duty uh, in order if some if your son uh, turns out to be gay which is after all something over which he has absolutely no control he's not just asking him he's saying he won't give him the money if he's gay he's not saying he won't give him the money if he doesn't act on his gay feelings he's saying he won't give him the money if he discovers he's gay so uh, that seems to me awful in many ways um and as i say because the I think the father's under, under an obligation to pay his fair share um, in these circumstances. The fact that uh, he would uh, fail to discharge that obligation if he if the son told the truth is a reason not to tell him the truth. Right. I mean, the issue here is is how do you ethically respond to somebody else's unethical behavior? 